Hello and welcome to episode 38 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine for the discerning film mood. It's June 2023, and with warm weather, the start of festival season and Pride Month, perhaps you haven't got time to watch films at the moment. Or perhaps your hay fever is kicking in and a couple of hours inside a darkened cinema is just what you need. Either way, we're here to get you through the month with a big helping of cinematic content for your waiting ears. My name's James Adamson and I'm a film nerd with a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema, and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. We aim to provide you with the podcast equivalent of the monthly film magazines you used to buy in the newsagent, packed with a range of features from the world of film. We divide each monthly issue into three parts, which we release a week at a time to keep your feed fed through the month. This is the first part of the episode, Double Real Monthly. We'll look at recent film news, what new releases are heading our way, and review any new films we've seen since the last episode. We'll also discuss how we're getting on with the film-related resolutions we made for 2023. Next week, we'll deliver our regular features, Classics and Recommended, Hidden Gem, The One That Got Away, and the remake, Hate Watch. The following week, it'll be The Big Conversation, where we talk about a topic from the world of film in more detail. We'll tell you more about that later, and there are more details about all of our features on our various social media channels. If you want to check that out or comment on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter on at DoubleRealFilm. There's also an Instagram account called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. You can also follow us on letterbox.com slash DoubleReal, where we list all the films we've discussed on the podcast and much more besides. If you like the podcast, we'd also be very grateful if you could leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you use, as it really helps us get the word out to the rest of the world. Now it's time to dim the lights and take your seats for our latest Double Real Monthly. Hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. Double Real Monthly is the first part of the episode and gives you a regular digestive news, new releases and how we've been fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. In the next hour and a bit, you'll get a breakdown of what's going on in the world of film this month that will set you up for your own movie watching. As well as that, at the start of each year, we make some film-related New Year's resolutions, so we'll be discussing the goals we've set for ourselves in 2023. As always, our mission is to give you a great discussion about films and film-related stories that will inspire you to escape the confines of the algorithm and watch something you haven't seen or have been meaning to see for a better cinematic experience. Also, just to quickly mention our other podcasts, which you might like to check out, The Adamson's Verses is where we step away from the world of film and talk about stories, news, and anything else that's caught our attention. Our latest episode, The Adamson's Verses Tales from the Campfire, is out now. With that piece of self-promotion out of the way, let's look at some messages we received from listeners. On this month's Cronenberg Institute entry, Eastern Promises, Paul says this is a great film. Viggo Mortensen deserved at least an Oscar nomination for his performance. I completely agree. I'll be talking about the film Sisu later, and there's been chat on the socials about this film. Mickey Notkeen saying, I fell asleep round about the time he fought off some Germans with submachine guns, armed only with a frying pan. Nat liked it better, exactly what I, what I was expecting, a one-man killing machine wiping out the Nazis. Daft and far-fetched, but enjoyable. Even more so Lucas, who says, I've been waiting ages to see this, and it's brilliant, everything I hoped it would be. Another new film coming up is Air, and DC said, Cracking cast, found myself really compelled about Nike's basketball arm trying to do a big deal with the Jordan family. Really enjoyed it. Daniel says, I thought it was pretty good with Shades of Moneyball and Jerry Maguire. Good acting and soundtrack. And on the oddly similar Tetris we'll be discussing, Travis says, I enjoyed it, but some of it must have been made up. Lenny says, The subject sounds boring, but this ended up being good fun with all the twists and turns involving Robert Maxwell and the Soviets. Thanks for all your messages. Now on with the pod. 
Okay, so we are looking at our usual subject matter for Double Real Monthly. Um, the first thing we cover is always the news. Um, any news caught your eye lately, mate? Um, what did I see? Yes, I saw an interesting one. This doesn't happen very often in the world of cinema, but the upcoming Deadpool 3 starring, uh, obviously, Ryan Reynolds as uh, Wade Wilson and Hugh Jackman as Wolverine yeah. has been brought forward six months. Did you see this? No, I didn't know that. They're always pushing it, films back. It was back, literally forwards. last night, and I thought, well, this is a good bit of news, for, uh, just in time for the pod. Um, and basically what they've they've brought brought it forward by six months. So I think it was meant to come out in November 2024, but they've managed to bring it forward to May 2024. Okay. Now, I don't know if that's because they were wanting to hit, like, get the summer blockbusters um, and yeah. maybe boost the sales there, because it feels like November's a a weird time for that film to come out. I know the first one came out around about Valentine's Day, which yeah. was funny, and it was kind of part of the marketing campaign, but yeah. I don't know if they're, they're just happy with the work that they've made, or if it's actually, you know, they were wanting to, you know, they reckon they'll be able to get the post, because I imagine I don't imagine it's ready to come out soon, but they reckon they'll get the post-production done for then, so it's good. It's good. I like yeah. to see stuff. I'm excited for that film to come out. Yeah, so. there's some sunny, funny stuff like that. Christopher Nolan always likes to release his film on the same date. Um... There's obviously the summer blockbuster stuff. Then also you've got people saying, actually, let's not release it in the summer because it's not that kind of film. Do you know what I mean? That might have been why they thought November because it's always a bit of an... You know, it's, Although it's like a superhero film, it's a bit of an alternative to the traditional blockbuster. My only worry, right, is that sometimes when they push the uh, release of a film forward, it, 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 you know, it means things are being rushed. But yeah, if, 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 they're, if they're confident... It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a while away, isn't it? They've moved it forward by six months while they've still got like a year to get get done, right? So hopefully it'll be all right. Well, the fact that Ryan Reynolds is one of the producers on it gives me faith that he's happy with the film yeah, that he's Yeah, he's very protective, isn't he? Yeah, so he's very you know passionate about uh, the Deadpool character. Mm. So I, yeah. I assume they've just absolutely smashed it ahead of schedule. And, um, and, fe- uh, and, feel, like, and feel like they can do the, the summer. Yeah, so that that was a, a, a not a big bit, like massive bit of news, but an interesting bit of news, I thought. Yeah, yeah, uh, very good. Uh, one I one I picked up. Uh, we're, we're turning into the obituary section again, but uh, actress Glenda Jackson has died at the age of eighty-seven. Oh, I did see that. Yeah. She's kind of before your time, really, isn't she? But no, um, I saw that it came up, and I saw what confused me is that it said actress Glenda Jackson, who was also a Labour MP. That's right, and that's that's quite rare. It is very rare. I mean, obviously, we're used to. Um, uh, actors being activists and expressing their opinions politically, but Glenda Jackson's one of those people who actually gave up a glittering acting career and then went into politics, got elected as an MP in 1992 and was in Parliament for 23 years, holding uh, at least one ministerial post. So, and then she came back for the like the last kind of like eight years and did some more acting. Um, hell, of, hell of a career. She won two Oscars, a BAFTA, a Golden Globe, a Tony Award and two Primetime Emmy Awards. Um, she got a CBE and six honorary doctorates, and, and you know some of that's for her, you know, political, you know, achievements. But uh, a life well lived, I think you can say. Yeah, no, it's uh, eighty-seven is a good innings. So yeah, that's... and another um, uh, news story. It's again, it's another kind of obituary one, which is actor Treat Williams died. Um, again, not someone you necessarily heard of. No, I did see this. It, be- Sorry, his, his face might look familiar to you, possibly. Well, it doesn't because it, I, obviously I follow um, Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb on various social media channels, and 
his face did pop up and it seemed like it was it was trending on the news on um bbc and sky but i didn't actually know who this, this yeah he's quite a, quite a recognizable actor from the 70s he was in a couple of big films uh, and then and then he was in once upon a time in america in a supporting role never quite made it to like stardom but had lots of handy supporting roles he's sort of well known to sort of the the 90s sort of Tarantino New Hollywood era fan because he had a mini comeback in a f- in uh, things to do in Denver when you're dead with quite a memorable performance. Um, but you know the most notable thing is he died in a motorcycle accident at the age of 71, which is yeah yeah grim. yeah. So it's obviously very sad. I mean he, I think he, he you know he's taken before his time really, um, and you know a durable and and you know very productive actor. Um, any other news stories that you've you've noticed? Um. Did I see something about Disney changing release dates again? Possibly. Uh, I know there's Disney, Disney, Disney are having a few problems. Um, I don't know this story, but it wouldn't surprise me if that's what's I think happening. they've changed their release dates again. You tell me the next story, and this is this is actually quite a big one. Like they've changed not just like not Deadpool changing its like that's not one title. It's like well, well, while you're looking that up, I, I've got two more, and I'll hop to the one that's closest to this subject matter. There's been some job cuts at Pixar. Uh, most notably the producer and director that were at the helm of the Lightyear film, which really flopped badly last year, but they've cut a lot of people and people are asking questions about whether Pixar needs to undergo some pretty big sort of fundamental changes. Um, They've been this kind of flagship kind of subsection of Disney for a long time now, but it's not working out as well as it has. People are saying you only make one film a year and in this modern era, you know, big blockbusters tend to need to be like, Either, either part of a franchise or, or IP that people have already heard of, like Mario or Barbie or whatever. And these original Pixar films are not making the money they used to and can't necessarily cost $200 million to make. I mean, Lightyear was just a bad idea that, that flopped, but they've, got, they've had other things where people have liked the film, but it's not made the kind of money that Toy Story 3 made or Monsters, Inc. made. So ch- some changes at Pixar, and it, they possibly might need to change the way they actually approach making films. Is that giving you enough time to, to yes, look at I, the, the, I have the, the I release was, date thing? I was right. So this was about a week ago, six days ago, this was announced. Um, Captain America Brave New World moved back a couple of months from May the 3rd, 2024 to July the 26th, 2024. Thunderbolts moved from July 26th, 2024 to December 20th, 2024. Uh, that Blade movie with Mahershala Ali has been moved back. Uh, mm. From September 6th, 24th to February 14th, 25th. That's another Valentine's movie for you there. Mm-hmm. Fantastic Four, which this gives me the fear because they're making another Fantastic Four film and they've moved they've it back ne- three months. Never, ever worked. Those films have never, ever worked, have they? Yep. Yeah. They've also announced um, an unta- untitled Alien movie, sorry, and a live-action Moana movie because everyone wants that. Avatar 3 has been moved from December 20th, 2024 to December 19th, 2025. That's a full year. Mm. Um, Avengers The Kang Dynasty moved from May the 2nd, 2025 to the May 1st, 2026. I wonder if that's because the actor Jonathan Majors is a fucking idiot. Um, Untitled Star Wars Project moved from December 19th, 2025 to May 22nd, 2026. Yeah. Uh, Avengers Secret Wars moved from May 1st, 26 to May 7th, twenty seven which is a full year. Avatar 4 moved from December 18th, 2026 to December 21st, 2029, <laughs> which is three years. And Avatar 5, Avatar 5 sorry, moved from December 2020, 
from December 22nd, sorry, 2028, to December 19th, 2031. <laughs> so, to put it into perspective... Just so James Cameron's Ava- in his own little universe in terms of release dates, isn't he? We've, we've got Avatar 3, uh, which Avatar 2 just came out there, so we'll be a three-year wait between those two films, and then four years between Avatar 3 and Avatar 4, and then two years between Avatar 4 and Avatar 5. I will be... 35 when Avatar 5 comes out. Bearing in mind, <laughs> I was 12 when I watched the first one. That's madness, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there are belated sequels, but not that, that have been that are being constantly worked on. I, I hope that this, this, this pushback of release dates means James Cameron's got time to finally fucking sign off on a Blu-ray of uh, The Abyss, because that get, gets on my tits. The, 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 there's only... The, one of his best films is still only in fucking standard definition. My mouth actually hurts from reading all of that. <laughs> well, let me give you a break. Um, the, the the last story that I found that I, that I wanted to, to cover this month is uh, Quentin Tarantino has teased a bit more information about his upcoming and possibly final film, The Movie Critic. There was a lot of speculation because, you know, because Tarantino tends to like dangle bits of info in front of people and people get talking. There was some speculation that it was going to be about Pauline Kael, one of the greatest ever film critics who briefly was invited to actually work on film production by Warren Beatty because you know Warren Beatty was kind of saying, well, you know, it would give you a really good perspective to actually see what it's like actually making a film rather than just commenting on the finished product. But it's none of that, according to Tarantino. He is talking about um, the inspiration for this character is a film critic who he didn't name, who, who worked for a, by Quentin Tarantino's description, a porno rag in the 70s. So he was... It's the old joke that people only used to read Playboy for the articles, but the um, this guy apparently, the this porno mag happened to have a, a film reviewer, and you know obviously he was not the, the biggest priority of that publication, but as a writer himself, even though he was kind of low, you know, obviously seen as very low s- status, a by the people who worked for him, b by everyone else, right? Imagine you're there from the New York Times and Roger Ebert and all those people are there and this bloke from a porno mag turns up to the screening to review the film as well. They're going to be looking down the nose at him. He's, you know, he's a complete outsider. Um, uh, but he wrote these really funny, rude, uh, outrageous um, uh, uh, reviews. He died when he was 55. Uh, no, no, sorry. He, he, he wrote like he was 55 and had seen the world. He, you know, he was very world-rude, but he only he died in his mid-30s. Um, so there's obviously one of these kind of strange flip side of Hollywood kind of stories that Tarantino's obsessed with that's going to form the basis of his story. I bet there's a lot more to come on that, but I think it's very interesting that Tarantino's just teased a little bit more information um, about about that film. Yeah, just enough information about that. Just film. just enough to get people wondering. Yeah. So yeah. Any any other news stories, or have you have you worn yourself out on the release? I think date I have. I, I think it was a relatively quiet month. I thought. Yeah, um, yeah, it was. Yeah. Okay, so what we do next is new releases. Having looked at the news, so this is where we look at. Over the course of the next month, from date of publication, this uh, this uh, this episode will be released on June the twenty fourth. So it's any film really sort twenty fifth. Sorry, any film released after that date and before our next episode, we have a look at what's coming up. 
and um, it's blockbuster, so there's some big films coming out. Any upcoming releases uh, in particular you want to speak about, mate? Well, I assume before the next one, Oppenheimer will have come yep, out. Yep, July, July the 21st, Oppenheimer comes out. Yeah, so that'll be a big one. Um, that I've is seen a, big a couple one. of trailers for that. It looks, looks quite good. It looks like it's going to be better than uh, Dunkirk and totally different to Tenet, so you can't really compare it. But it looks like he's gone back to doing a, a historical film, um, but it looks like it's going to be... It looks like it's going to be a lot more character-driven, this one. Because yeah. Dunkirk wasn't really character-driven because I can't remember any of the names of the people in Dunkirk. Yeah, I think, and, just, I think, and I think that was intentional, wasn't it? Whereas this looks like we're going to follow um, Oppenheimer and his wife and just the people involved in the Manhattan Project, I think. It's going to be yeah, a, sort of like, even though we know how it ends, it looks like it's going to be quite tense um, race against time kind of thing because obviously they're talking about the Nazis having their own kind of project to discover atomic energy so it yeah, looks like and it's and going I to be think, interesting i think it's an element of often oppenheimer struggling with the ethics of what he's doing as well and you know worrying about you know what he's unleashing on the world and stuff well what i found interesting is that we've obviously well i assume everyone's seen this clip if you haven't look up um is it, what's his name robert j oppenheimer yeah yeah look up that clip of him saying i am the I've become death. Yeah, it's, or, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. It's a very famous clip. But yeah, it's, you it's see a, a Hindu man, quote. Yeah, you see a man who is absolutely just destroyed. He's lifeless behind the eyes. He looks like he's got. Um, he's the he's, eyes he's really, he's really haunted, isn't he? But as in this, it looks like he's actually got the desire to create this bomb to end the war. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it'll be interesting to see how they. Well that. well, that quote from Oppenheimer, I think, is after the bomb's gone off, and, well, he, know, and he knows what he's done. So I think that the 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 two. The two Oppenheimers that you could see that that could be very interesting in a film, couldn't it? Yeah, because you're gonna you're gonna see you're definitely gonna see the guy who looks like he's well, we need to get this bomb made to defeat the Nazis, but it looks like he's not quite come to terms with the consequences of that and how yeah. the Russians and all these people might try and copy it. So yeah, I'm excited for it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just don't know what kind of film we're gonna get because I mean, while he's made a couple of films in the past that had a historical setting, one was The Prestige which is essentially a sci-fi film, right? You know, don't want to spoil the plot, but there's, you know, that that's what it is. Yeah, it's a weird one. To, it's a weird one very to say difficult, very difficult to Very difficult to categorise. And Dunkirk, which we know is not going to be anything like this, is because Dunkirk was a military operation, you know, that he, that he filmed in a specific way. I, I don't think we I don't think we know what this is going to be like. It's funny that it's only a month till it comes out and we really don't know for sure what it's going to be like, right? He has said that the audience, I imagine if they go to see it in IMAX with all the speakers, should be able to feel like they're in the middle of an atomic bomb. So that sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Nolan Nolan is all about like the the, the, the audience experience, isn't he? So, Surprised he didn't fucking set off an atomic bomb in fucking battle scene. Yeah, there was this um, whole discussion, wasn't it? Say he was going to try and do all of this without CGI. And it's like, what, what you're going to actually set off an atomic bomb, Chris? It's like... Well, no, he's probably going to do what people did before CGI, which is use other kinds of special effects, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, pra- practical effects are practical effects. I think are a lot more popular. I think ever since Gravity, right? Ever since Gravity and Alfonso Cuarón saying, "I'm not going to rely purely on CGI for this because I want it to feel more real," you know. Yeah. Um, other that we might, we might as well this Barbie's coming out on the same day, and people are kind of saying there's going to be some sort of box office duel between Barbie and Oppenheimer. I'm not sure they appeal to the same audience well what you can do is people that are interested in an actual film that'll be interesting can go and see um oppenheimer and for the folk that don't really want to pay attention they can go to see barbie 
Yeah, I think Barbie's sort of... I mean, I've seen someone talking about the Little Mermaid film, that basically it's a day out for people who remember the original film and want to sing along. And I think Barbie is like a fun... It's a fun it night. shit. It's a fun night out for people who like Barbie. And it's like, I can't imagine that the Barbie audience and the Oppenheimer audience have got a big kind of centre in the, in the Venn diagram, right? Yeah. It is what it is. I mean, people are saying that with the people that have directed it and, 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 and written it, that it's going to have a very kind of fun, slightly arch, slightly spoofy element. But whatever, man. It's about, it's about Barbie. I won't be watching it. Um, so... Uh, other films coming out. It is it is all sort of big blockbusters. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny comes out on June the thirtieth. I've seen some of the reviews. It's not looking good. I just think. I mean, apparently there's time travel involved and whatever. <laughs> I mean, I mean, look, Indiana Jones sort of was a great trilogy that didn't need a fourth film, and it really doesn't need a fifth. But whatever. Um, and July the twelfth. I'm very very excited about this. Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One. Um, I've seen all sorts of trailers for this. I'm not sure if this is the part of Dead Reckoning where he literally drives a train off a cliff. I think it's the one where he rides the motorbike off a mountain. As with all of these things, uh, Tom Cruise has been making these films bigger and, in my humble opinion, better. You know, ever since like Mission Impossible Three came out, he's been these films have got you know they're just massive events. So I'm looking forward to that. I reckon that's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, I'm I'm excited for that. Sorry, but he's got to let this franchise go at some point because it is. It's just going to become a kind of tokenistic. Oh, what stunt did you do in this film? I think. You know I, mean? I mean, there is a theory that Tom Cruise is going to die doing a stunt for a Mission Impossible film, and that's how he wants to go out. Yeah, and all of his connections to Scientology will be miraculously burned, and nobody will ever find out what a fucking fruit bat he is. Yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think I think. I get the feeling, you never know with him, because he is a freak of nature, but he is kind of doing these two films back to back, because then he'll have done eight Mission Impossible films, and if if he if he physically can't keep it up after that, um, he's, you know, he's done it. I mean, no, you know, no one's done that character for as long as that. You know, he's he did his first Mission Impossible film in 1996, and his last one's going to come out almost 30 years after that. You know, no one managed to play Bond for 30 years. I think he can... If he goes out with part two, and that's that, you know, Dead Reckoning part two, and and that and that's you know that's it for Mission Impossible. I think he's still done a, a fucking unprecedented thing with that franchise. So, I just you know I I, I want to watch these two films. I'm looking forward to them, and then who knows after that? I mean, I think Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is a very good example of what happens when you when you go on too long at this sort of thing. So, hopefully, he's paying attention. Any other new releases caught your eye, mate? Um, no, I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's a funny one. I mean, I I don't want to just go and see blockbusters at this time of year, um, which is why I went to see one of the films we'll be talking about later. Um, but you know, it is it is blockbuster season, so that's you know that's the size of the films we're talking about. Okay, well that's uh, that's that for for the new releases. Uh, the next thing we tend to talk about, uh, it's a relatively new feature, but I think it's already kind of become very established is the penalty shootout film quiz. Um, we, even though it's a, a new feature, we sort of tweaked the format last month, uh, and now I think we have a nice little kind of sequence to it. What happens is we play a mini game, the blind ranking top five, to see who gets a lifeline in the actual quiz, and then we play a quiz in the format of a penalty shootout. Uh, you know, one of us answers a question, then the other one. The winner after five does a... Um, 
uh, a forfeit. Uh, the uh, if uh, if we both do really badly, we both have to watch the forfeit film, which tends to be watching a film we know we're going to hate. Uh, but if we both do really well and there's no winner after five, there is a tiebreaker. And if it's still even after that, then we just, as happened last month, roll over the um, uh, the forfeit till next time. So, just quickly, mate, do you have a do you have the same forfeit for me as last time, uh, or uh, or have you got a new one? So, did you watch Australia in the end? Yes, I did. So, nice, hmm. and I bear the scars. I don't know. I, don't, I think. The last, the last should... time you, you, you asked me to watch any Steven Seagal film after 2010, that was the fourth oh, last yes, time. Oh, yes, 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 yes. But, yes, we, yes. but it obviously, because it was a draw last time, we didn't, uh, no one had to do their forfeit. You can stick with that, or if there's, or you can come up with another one. Well, I had the idea that we could have a mutual forfeit, and the loser has to watch A Monkey's Tale. <laughs> because we both hate that film. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'll do. I will, I will save... Um, the fourth film that's been hanging over you all this time for another time, which was uh, Wes Anderson's *The Life Aquatic* with Steve Zissou, and oh, let's make yeah, let's yeah. make it a single forfeit. The loser today has to watch *A Monkey's Tale*, which which funnily enough goes along quite well with the overall theme of our of our of our podcast episode this month, where all of our featured films, you know, *The Hidden Gem* and *The Classic* and everything are animated. So it's kind of fitting that our fourth film is animated as well. Should we do that? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's start with the blind ranking top five. Do you want to go first or shall I? Uh, you go first this time. Uh, so I'm, I have to do a blind ranking or I'm going to offer you, give you the blind ranking? Who's, you I, give me a blind ranking. I'll, 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 I'll give you a list for ranking. Okay. I want you to list the five following films in order of what is the best film. These are Al Pacino films. So not just his performance, but how good is the film overall? Uh, and like last month, for those of you who haven't haven't listened before, blind ranking means I list one film, uh, James has to rank it one to five, and he doesn't know what the other films are yet. So he could think, oh, this this film's really good. I'm going to rank it one, and there could be something much better down the line. So it's blind ranking, a bit bit of suspense. We'll do this, okay? Uh, which of these, you know, which of these Al Pacino films is the best? Rank them one to five. Uh, first one, any given Sunday. That film had its problems. So, I'm tempted to put it four in case you give me fucking... What's that film he was in with Adam Sandler, Jack and Jill? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that his, film's got one his, good his, speech it, and the rest his, of it is His shit. speech is iconic and there are the pro- very problematic aspects. Okay, so you're ranking any given Sunday fourth, yeah? I will put it fourth. Okay, next, Insomnia. Um, I'll put that three. Okay, so Insomnia 3, Any Given Sunday is 4. Yeah. Next, House of Gucci. Um, there's got to be a better one coming up, so I'll put that 2. Okay. Next, The Irishman. Oh, I hated that film, 5. And finally, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which all, all that's left is to make that first. Number one. So how does that go? One, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Two, House of Gucci. Three, Insomnia. Four, Any Given Sunday. And five, The Irishman. That, that's I shaken mean, out quite well for you. I mean, you, I'm you, happy with you, that list from my perspective. There's yeah, probably people listening that are going, what the fuck's he talking about? But The Irishman was a big pile of hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I know that you, you don't rate The Irishman, so that, that's consistent. Would you, if you'd seen all five at the beginning, would you have put Insomnia higher than House of Gucci or... 
I really liked Toshiguchi. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I did too, and he was yeah. very good. Yeah. Okay. So, right, you're quite comfortable with that list. Uh, that's. I think. I think you've landed quite close to the uh, to the to the mark there. Uh, my turn. You have to rank these Francis Ford Coppola films, as in best best to worst. Yeah. Yep. So from one to five, I'll give you a moment to just kind of gather your thoughts and remember the films that he's made and the films that might come up. Yeah, the, the question is, what bad ones are you throwing in here? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I could be horrible. I could put, you know, an absolute humdinger last. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so. The Conversation. Ooh. Um, you see, that's hard, isn't it? Because how many of his other classics have you got in here? <laughs> um, that's quite fiendish, that is. Um, three. Apocalypse Now. One. Oh, 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 oh. Oh. Are you sure? Yeah. It's my favourite couple of films, so um, that, that one's easy. It, where the conversation lands versus other films is where I could trip up. Okay. The Godfather Part 2. Okay, well that has to be two, given the list I've just done. The Godfather Part 3. Oh, um, okay. So here is the question. This is either landing four or five, and it's a question of how how bad the last film is. I'm going to say, this is where I get tripped up because there could be an even worse film or a better film here. I'm going to say four. Number five, Jack. Oh, five, five. Done well, yeah, I'm reasonably well, happy yeah. with that. I'm reasonably happy I with that. I thought you might put Godfather Part 3, 5, expecting maybe, you know, the Godfather Part 1. Mm. But, no, yeah, yeah. so what was your list? Uh, so I've gone Apocalypse Now, The Godfather Part 2, The Conversation, Godfather Part 3, and Jack. I mean, other okay. people other people might put Godfather Part 2 ahead of Apocalypse Now, and that's a, you know, a, a podcast conversation on its own. But, I mean, I'm pretty happy with that list. I think if you were to take your lists in isolation and like take our list in isolation without knowing my dislike for the Irishman, you probably look at those two lists and go, "What? Why has he done that?" So I think your list wins. So that means you've won the coin toss, doesn't it? Okay. Well, I'll I'll happily take that lifeline because this is a tough quiz. So. The, the purpose of that blind ranking top uh, top five is that the winner of that gets a lifeline in the penalty shootout. Um, this is I'm enjoying how complicated we've made this format. This is part of the fun. So I get a lifeline now on these five questions. At any point, I can ask for a clue or something like that to make it easier. Um, right. Do you want do you want to ask a question first or do you want to uh, answer a question first? Well, you've got the coin toss, so you decide. So you've got the coin toss and you've got a lifeline. So you decide. Um, I will I will receive a question first. I'll go first. Okay. What was the name of the boat in Jaws? I'm going to absolutely kick myself. You will. I'm going to absolutely kick myself. All right, I'm already coining. I'm already coining in the lifeline. Jesus. I mean, I can't. I can't. I can give you the answer, but I can try and give you a clue. Okay. Um, it is named after another sea animal. It's a mammal. Oh, it's the orca. There you are. Oh, Jesus, I just I want I want that shooting is, for needing yeah, a lifeline. Fuck your lifeline. If, if I if I um if I need a lifeline for another question, I I, I deserve to be stuck. 
Jesus. <laughs> watching the monkey's tail. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Fuck's sake. Okay, I've already wasted my lifeline, but at least I'm still in. All right, I've got one. Okay, here's your first question. How many so-called Bond girl actresses have made multiple appearances in Bond films? So this is not counting Money Holy Penny. Fuck. This is not counting Money Penny and M. And they have to have played like one of the main female roles, not just be a receptionist or something. It has to be like the love interest or you know main you know antagonist type thing. Um, and the clue, uh, the clue is: is it two, three, or none? Have two actresses made multiple appearances? Have three actresses made multiple appearances, or have no actresses made multiple appearances in Bond films as a Bond girl? Now is this going to be like a fucking like trick question because? Who's our chops? Vesper Lind like has a fucking no nothing like that. No, that nothing no, like that. No, no, no flashbacks don't count. They have to have right, actually okay, acted okay. in it, and they don't have to play the same character necessarily. They just have to appear as that kind of Bond girl character, you know, more than once in a film. And they have two actresses done that, three or no actresses done that, two, three, or zero. Uh, I've not. This must be like from like Bond films that I don't remember. So, like, you know, the ones like Thunderball mm-hmm. and all these ones. So, take a punt and go three. Correct. Couldn't name me the actresses, couldn't name me any of the films. Ever. Yeah, it was um, obviously uh, Leah Sidhu, um returned after her Spectre, Spectre character. Um, and uh, what was the name? Maud Adams uh, was one. And there's a third one, which is, uh, I need to remember now. Um, there's, but there's definitely three. Yeah, so it's your correct. That's uh, that's one. Okay. Right. Question number two. There are six films. There are six horror films. Sorry, to have ever competed for an Oscar. I would like you to name me four of them. Six. When you say for an Oscar, that be nominated for any Oscar or have been nominated for Best Picture or something. Not like Best that. Picture, just any Oscar. So they've been. So, and I, I need to name two. Yes. Two horror films that have been nominated for Oscars. No, no, you need to name four, so you can't... So four, so four. Four out of six. You know all of these films 100% I've watched these films with you. Okay, so um, Get Out is definitely one of them. Yep. Because it was nominated and won for screenplay. Did The Exorcist get nominated for something? That's two. Now let's see what other horror films have been... Trying to think, maybe one. If we're talking about nominations for kind of creature effects and stuff like that, what about American Werewolf in London? That is incorrect. But I'm gonna let. Uh, no, 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 I'm gonna let you have six guesses because those six films. So okay. you've still I've got. Could have sworn that'd be nominated for makeup. You've, got, you've still got three more guesses. Does Aliens count as a horror film? It's not on my list. Hmm. Yeah, because it's more of an action film. So, so you've yeah, got shoot. two more, two more guesses, and you need to get them both right. Okay, two guesses, and two more. Right. Okay. So classic horror films from down the ages. I'm trying to think. Um, what about the Omen for the music? Nope. Oh, that can't so be. That right. is you. That's weird. The o- the Omen was definitely nominated for the music. All right. Well, maybe, well, maybe maybe my question is a bit flawed. I've taken these question, this question, sorry, from a, from the internet because I was trying to find a more interesting one than one I could just come up with. Sure. So what, um, what, what are the ones I've missed? 
So according to this question, it was Jaws, The Silence of the Lambs, The Sixth Sense, and Black Swan. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's because they were nominated in like the big categories, not just technical. Maybe, ones. maybe, maybe yeah, that's yeah. where the question yeah, yeah. is a bit more. Yeah. No. Okay. All right. Well, that's I've that's I've got my second one wrong. Here comes your second. You can take the lead here. Which of the following superhero actors stole their costume from the film set so they could show up in character for visits to sick kids in hospital? Oh. A. A. Jeremy Renner. B. Chris Pratt. C. Halle Berry. Could be any of them. You'd be fucking gutted if Halle Berry showed up as Catwoman, though. Well, no, you wouldn't. But if you were a film buff, you'd be. Fucking well, well she could show up as Catwoman or as um, oh, as Storm, Storm from from the X Men. So, what were the options? Chris Pratt, Halle Berry, and Jeremy Renner. Ugh. It feels like something all all of these people would do. So, <sighs> shoot down the middle, Chris Pratt. Correct. <laughs> He stole his Star Lord costume so that he could like make make appearances as Peter Quill for um oh, uh, the kids in hospital. Okay, so um, that's, that's... I've got no knowledge today. I'm just punting. Okay, that's two one to you. Third question for me. Okie dokie. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. What was the name of the character Jack Nicholson played in the film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Oh, fuck me. This is another one where I'm going to absolutely kick myself. I love this film. I love his performance. I can You've quote about it, ten lines. Yeah. I quote lines from it. What the hell is he called? Oh, fuck me. No, I'm drawing a blank. I deserve shooting, but I've drawn a blank. Randall McMurphy. Randall fucking McMurphy. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> okay, you could you could take a 3-1 lead here. Shit. Okay. Uh, my luck will run out with this one. I don't think I'll get it. Okay. Which of the following films does NASA use as part of its training program for new staff? A, Gravity. B, Apollo 13. Or C, Armageddon. <laughs> Imagine it was Armageddon. Um, I feel like I feel like logically that should be Apollo 13 because of how Mission Control dealt with it in terms of how you would converse in that situation, how it remained calm. I feel that's the most logical one. Armageddon. <laughs> I fucking hope it's not Armageddon because I've written it off right away. Is it to show them how to not deal with a planet endangering circumstance? Um, what was the other one? Gravity. Um, I think it depends what kind of recruits I'm thinking. Am I th- am I talking about recruits that are going up into space or the people that are going to mission control? It's 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 NAS- NASA management people. So like people that sit in the control room. Yeah. Or, you know, or in other kind of technical kind of you know you know, you know design. I management suppose people stuff. working on the space station could look at the kind of opening scenes on how they're repairing the ship. Uh, I'll go Apollo thirteen. The correct answer is Armageddon. <laughs> the idea is, the what I- the fuck do you mean the idea is is that new recruits to NASA are invited to watch the film and point out how many factual inaccuracies are in the okay. movie like that oh, couldn't happen there's no sand hell. in space rockets don't do that apparently there's like 160 like factual errors in the movie <laughs> okay. and you see how many you can, you can like, oh my god <laughs> oh man 
Okay, so, Michael Bay. so I'm about to have my third question where I could bring it back to this would make it. Okay. How many have you got right so far? You've got two right so, so far. Two, one, and one. Oh, so I, 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 could, I could draw level here with my fourth question, but, yes. but I'm still essentially behind. Which Indiana Jones film sparked controversy that led to the creation of the PG-13 rating? That's Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Yes, that was probably far too easy for yourself. Well, I after, after for that fi- half after, scene, isn't it? After not getting McMurphy, I'm fucking. It, it was the kind of the culmination of a lot of problems with the rating because it went straight from essentially a PG to like the American equivalent of a 15, and there were films that were PG rated that were having like violence, blood, and nudity and stuff, and it was just kind of you know certain things. I mean, like Jaws was a PG. And certain yeah, other films, it's, you know, mental, these films. So that that's where it comes from. Okay, so that's 2-2, two, two, but you now have your fourth question to answer where you could take a 3-2 a lead going into the last question. Okay. Chewbacca was inspired by George Lucas's dog, a huge Alaskan Malamute. Huh. What was the dog's name? Oh, no. That's just going to be a Star Wars name, isn't it? I think it's going to be Han. And just go no fanning about Han. The correct answer is Indiana. Fuck! The clue is in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. They say we named the dog Indiana. I don't remember that film. That film's quite bad. <laughs> but yeah, all right. So I, two, I, two. so th- we got fifth question now. So I could, I could, I could at least make make you get an answer right um, here I, I, with my fifth one. Okay, you're getting a leeway with of one for the first part of this question, but not for the second part. Okay. How many Academy Awards has actress Meryl Streep been nominated for? That's the first part, where you're allowed a leeway of one. And how many has she actually won? Okay. You're not getting a leeway for that, because okay. you should know that. She's been nominated a bunch of times, hasn't she? So let's think of all the times that she's been nominated. Probably the first time she was nominated was... Uh, Deer Hunter, and you had Kramer versus Kramer that she won for, and you have Silkwood, and you have the Iron Lady, and you have a bunch of other stuff that she's won. I think she's been nominated quite a lot. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say she's been nominated nine times, and she's won three. Okay, so you're way off. She's won three, but she's been nominated so many times, my man. 21 times. 21? I would never have gotten near 21. Yep. Fucking so, hell. Okay. Uh, I mean, look at some of the fucking films she's been nominated for. The Post, Florence Foster Jenkins, Into the Woods, August Osage County, The Iron Lady, which she won, Julie and Julia, Doubt, The Devil Wears Prada, Adaptation, Music of the Heart, One True Thing, The Bridges of Madison County, Postcards from the Edge, A Cry in the Dark, Ironweed, Out of Africa, Silkwood, Sophie's Choice, which she won, The French Lieutenant's Woman, Kramer versus Kramer, which she won, the deer hunter. Yeah, there, I mean, there are some kind of she's she's like a she's a little bit like a striker that's um, that, that's got a lot of goals because they're the penalty taker. Do you know what I mean? She gets a lot of nominations because she's Meryl Streep, but she's also very good in all those films. So fair play yeah. to her. All right, you could win this with the final <laughs> with the final answer, and if you don't get this right, then we're going to the tiebreaker. So this is this is to win, James. What is the highest grossing animated film of all time? 
frozen? The correct answer is frozen too. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought, I just paused. I thought, is he going to say frozen too? No, no, he's not. I genuinely didn't think it made that much more money. Like, no, I thought it was really big. One. It's really big. You know what it's like, because all the people who didn't maybe didn't see Frozen in, in the cinema but have watched it on video and have got a younger sibling who they get dragged along to see it next time and so on. So Frozen 2 is bigger than Frozen 1. Okay, we're on our tiebreaker questions. Okay. Now, I think this has been a high-quality quiz, notwithstanding that I fucking needed a lifeline for Jesus. Anyway, um, I think if, if, if it's still a draw after this, no one has a forfeit. But whoever gets, if someone wins here, then one of us is watching <laughs> A Monkey's Tale. Oh, dear. So, I'm, I'm answering the question first, aren't I? Uh, yes. So, are you ready? I am ready. What is the name of Edward Norton's character in Fight Club? Okay, so there is going to be a spoiler alert here for listeners. I do apologise. I'm going to answer this question in a logical way. For large parts of the film, or I think certainly when you look up on IMDb, I believe he's just called the narrator. And I think for large parts of the film, people thought he was maybe called Jack because he was reading those books that saying, I am Jack's kind of a diseased kidney and stuff like that. And he says things like, I am Jack's complete lack of surprise and everything else. However... The plot of the film is that he is actually suffering a psychotic break and split personality, and his name is actually Tyler Durden. So that's not the answer I've got here. The answer I have here is that he does not have a name. So we're going to go to an adjudicator's decision here, because if you've, your logic seems like you've actually trumped my, uh, my the answer I have written down. So... Strictly speaking, in the cast list in IMDb, he doesn't have a name, but that's so as not to spoil the plot. However, at the same time, Tyler Durden could only be the name he made up for his, you know, you know, for his split personality. But he does go by type. People refer to him as Tyler Durden throughout the film because so, you know, because in all the scenes where it's at people where he thinks it's Brad Pitt making those speeches, everyone else is making those speeches and are, you know, he goes, people say, what's my name? And they say Tyler Durden. And everyone towards so, the end of the film thinks he's say your name's Tyler Durden, sir. So the answer I wrote down is that he doesn't have a name. However, there is a scene where you can see that the narrator's license, his name is Jack Moore. So I'm going to ask you another question because that question wasn't actually very fair when you went into it. I'm going to ask okay. you another question, different one, because that wasn't. I'll quickly try and come up with another question that seems... Fair and yes. Do you want to ask my question then? Okay. Give me a little bit more time. Okay. Which of the following Best Picture Oscar winners had the lowest production budget? So which of these three films cost the least to make? A. Coda, B. Nomadland, or C. Moonlight? Oh, I couldn't even tell you the budget for those films. Another punt in the dark. I doubt they were. I doubt they were made for much. It would have been mostly just kind of like salaries and like paying for like production settings and stuff like that. So what was it? Coda, Moonlight, and Nomadland. I feel like Moonlight was probably made even cheaper than Coda. Oh, 
there's no way to logically think about this if you don't even know it. Because <sighs> it's not really, it's not films that are actually big spectacular. For... I'm going to say that Coda was the most expensive just because it came out most recently. And it's a toss up between Nomadland and Moonlight. I'll go for Moonlight. Is the right answer. Oh, okay, so if I don't if I don't get your reworked question, then you win and I have to watch a monkey's tail. Yes. Whose liver did Hannibal Lecter eat aside fava beans and a nice Chianti in the film The Silence of the Lambs? It was a census taker. You are correct. Oof. Okay, we're going to call that a draw. Lots of twists and turns Jesus. there. I don't feel like I've played all that well because I should have known McMurphy from fucking One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. But, but you know you when had you watch your lifeline. You know when you watch. So, you know when you watch so many films and you just go, oh, Jack, when Jack Nicholson says this and went, do you know what I mean? And I just I sort of subsumed when Jack Nicholson's character. Name. Yeah, it subsumed their character's name. But yeah, I, I you know, I, I probably set the tone by needing a lifeline for the orca. But it's fucking the orca. That's, that's but Jules, that shows man. the importance of having a good kind of assessment and knowledge of your ranking list. Yeah, because... That's made that... We, when we started this thing, it was just a daft, let's do five questions. And now it's like... The ranking list. A lot's list, on the fucking done. line now. <laughs> yeah, this is complicated. This is like more complicated than American sport now. Um, <laughs> okay, very good. Well played, mate. We've done the um, We've done the penalty shootout film quiz. So now what we talk about, um, we've talked about many things, but now we get on to the, uh, the sharp end of things and we talk about any new films we've watched uh, since we last had a Double Real Monthly. So what films have you watched recently, mate? I watched the new Super Mario Brothers film. Yeah, what did you think? I thought it was fucking great. I know it's been getting a lot of mixed reviews and people at my work said that they hated it and thought it was rubbish. I thought it was fucking brilliant. Yeah, I mean, it's, I it's going it absolutely fun. great guns at the box office, isn't it? Yeah, I thought it was just. I thought it was just everything you wanted that film to be. I thought it was fun, had lots of character, not character, had a lot of fan service, a lot of references. Jack Black's absolutely brilliant, um, and the way they do the fan service is in like funny ways. Mm-hmm. So there's, I don't want to spoil it. There's a a bit where Jack Black is playing Bowser, and there's like a kind of Bowser reference that they do very kind of creatively. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I thought it was very well done, and I look forward to the sequel. I thought it was, yeah, I, I mean, thought it was refreshing and excellent just to watch. That, that's interesting. I mean, I mean, I've, I'd, I heard it was good, right? And I heard that the reason it's doing so well is that it works for like young kids who want to go and see a colourful, fun, exciting. Do you know what I mean? Like the Lego Movie or any of these other films that have done well because they were actually a good watch for a young, like a kid audience. But it's also working well, and some of the reason it's making as much money as it had is that people over the last thirty years who grew up playing any of the Mario film uh, video games would enjoy this because it seems to have recreated the style and vibe of those games. And that seems to be, I mean, that's probably, I mean, you're not the target audience for the, the kids film element of this, but you have played Mario, haven't you? So it kind of, did it recreate yeah. that? Did it recreate that world and vibe for you? Like it's good sound. If people say it's like, like, it's a fun, it's a fun environment to see a story play out in, you know? Yeah. It, it just felt like you were playing one of like the original games, but, with a lot better animation. That's what it felt like. It was... A lot of people have fallen down making that kind of movie, right? Yeah, I think it was... It's not the best adaptation of a video game you're probably going to see. That's 
probably The Last of Us. Yeah. Um, but it was it wasn't awful. It really wasn't terrible. It was. Mm. Well, you remember Tony when Tony, friend of the potty, wrote in and said the thing about Last of Us is that they've 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 made a, a TV show about the story because The Last of Us is a video game isn't as much about specific types of gameplay. Yeah. Um, whereas with Super Mario, Super Mario Brothers, same as like the Sonic the Hedgehog, is there's certain things that happen in the game and in the gameplay, which is part of the movie. So it's hard to do that and still make a movie. So I mean, yeah, I mean, the first the first attempt to do this film was pretty poor. So someone someone deserves some credit for making it making you enjoy this one, right? Yeah, I thought it was just just fun. Yeah. Anything else new or recent you watched? Um, let me have a little refresh of my. You you tell me yeah, the new films you've sure. watched. Yeah, while, while you have a look at what you've been watching recently, I'll do at least the first one that I watched. Um, I watched Sharper, which was released exclusively to streaming on Apple TV this year, so it's a 2023 film. Uh, Julia Julianne Moore plays a con artist who infiltrates a rich family, but then the complexities of the con, the people she's conning, the people she's working with on the con, all start to unravel. Um, I enjoyed this because it tells the story in an unexpected way from an angle you you kind of you don't normally get. You know, normally these con artist films we watch Matchstick Men and it kind of you 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 plan you plan the con the con plays out shit happens and and then there's the fallout. This comes at it from quite a different angle, which was pretty clever, I thought, and and I enjoyed it. Some good supporting characters. Julianne Moore's very good, uh, but the other the other uh, the other the other actors are very good in it as well. Um, I think you need to be a fan of the genre to like it, unlike something like Matchstick Men. Um, there are a few sort of inconsistencies in the story where you kind of go, oh yeah, but they've just kind of, they've, they've done that so the story can happen the way they want it to happen. But it was well made, well shot and acted. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Um, shall, I, shall I carry on? You, you just you just jump in when, you, when you're ready to talk about the films. So I've got a couple. So I watched Monty Python, um, The Life of Brian, again, just mm-hmm. for something to watch um still as good as you remember yeah it's it's fun it's it's daft um there's a couple of things that you kind of think oh they're not very appropriate now like one of the wise men sort of having blackface Mm. um but i mean i think at the time though that was like a comment because that's how the three wise men used to be presented at kids nativity yes But again, blackface is problematic, isn't it? Yeah, they don't really talk about it like that. They just kind of mm. have the guy in black. If, if, if you were going to do it now, you would have to comment on it in the same way that they got away with blackface in Tropic Thunder because it was quite clear what they were doing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, I watched Indiana Jones and the Rivers of the Lost Ark again, which was just good value. It's a good film. And I tried to watch that Assassin's Creed film, and my God, it was terrible. The Michael Fassbender one. Yeah, maybe I had a kind of taste of wanting to watch, what do you call it, video game adaptations, and that could have been a great film, but it was just... Do you, do you find with films like that sometimes, part of you gets tempted to watch it again to see if there's some redeeming features in it, and then you watch it and you go, nope, still crap. Yeah, like <laughs> it, it sets up the story quite nicely with what happens in the start where he becomes an orphan and he watches his father murder his mother and with a with an assassin's blade and you think, oh, where's this going to go? And then, weirdly enough, when Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard, you know, became, like, the main characters of the story, it just got a lot shitter. And there's lots of things where you thought it was, like, the first take and the director went, yeah, that'll do. 
Because Michael Fassbender can act. We know he can act. He's a fucking terrific actor. We've seen him in 12 Years a Slave and Shame and Hunger. We know he's a tremendous um, performer. And it just felt like this, whatever he did, the director didn't give him any direction on it or say, look, maybe we try it again this way and see if we like it more. It was just, yeah, it was just shit. And then other than that, it was just the uh, features which we'll talk about in a different pod and my Nicolas Cage for the month. Very good. Yeah, so with Assassin's Creed, for people who are interested, we go into a bit more detail on why Assassin's Creed didn't work and how they could have done it better in episode 33. Um, so it's worth going looking for that. Um, but yeah, it's one of those ones where video game adaptations are fraught with problems anyway. They're hard to do. Uh, and they made a couple of big mistakes in that one. But uh, yeah, thought it was uh, interesting you watched it again. Didn't want to give up on it. Yeah, I, you know me. I love that video game series and thought maybe I can just push through to the end. But yeah, no, yeah, it just yeah, yeah. wasn't there. Okay, so other new films I watched, uh, these actually got a mention uh, in, our, in our listener messages, uh, was Air. This is, I think you probably you know about this. I think a lot of people know about this. This is, tells the true life story about how Nike turned around their basketball division by signing up Michael Jordan in 1984 and revolutionising both their business and also how basketball players uh, are rewarded for you know wearing you know the the the, sort of the the shoes and you know shoes and sportswear of their sponsors. Uh, I have to admit, I went into this going, I don't get it. It's about a shoe. It's about businessmen winning a deal to make a shoe. How is this going to be interesting? Um, but, you know, it's got a really good cast. Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, Viola Davis, Jason Bateman, Chris Tucker. Believe it or not, there's a really good uh, cameo performance by Marlon Wayans. Um, and Ben Affleck just, he just, he directs the shit out of this. He just makes it work. Um, it, he manages to make it seem like an underdog story because Nike's behind Converse and Adidas in the basketball division, even though Nike is not an underdog at all, really. They're a billion-dollar business. But he manages to pull it off. Um, well, sorry, back then they weren't. They were, they, they were, were kind of a laughing stock In basketball, yeah, but in all of their other divisions, they were like the leader yeah. in jogging shoes and stuff like that. It's, it's weird. They've just managed to make them seem like the underdogs in this story. It's just it's, it's such a clever bit of work because on the face of it, it's such a dry topic. I mean, I couldn't get my, my missus to watch this. Because when I said air, she said, what's it about? I described the plot and she went, I'm not watching that. That sounds crap. So I watched it myself and turned out it was, you know, even if you don't mind watching a story about corporate deals and characters, which I will do on occasion, you know, it does seem quite dry. Everyone knows how it turns out. Everyone knows that Michael Jordan signed with Nike. The Air Jordan basketball shoe became huge and all of that stuff. So it's a corporate story about a shoe that everyone knows the answer to. So I'm still not entirely sure why they managed to make it work, apart from the fact that it's very well written, well acted, very well directed. Viola Davis steals every scene that she's in. Um, Matt Damon's terrific. Ben Affleck does this really great supporting role as the CEO. Um, ben Affleck. Sorry Obi. sorry, Obi is interrupting. In the Obi's obviously interested in what we have to say about Air, but... Um, Ben Affleck must have done a great job directing this film because I enjoyed it. And it's a film about a shoe and I enjoyed it. So you can only conclude that everyone did a great job making this movie, you know? I only, had a little, sorry. I only had a little bit of knowledge of this film because of uh, the Netflix series, The Last Dance, where it talks about that. That's literally where this story came from. The guy who wrote the script watched The Last Dance and the bit about how the, about the, 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 the Air Jordan shoe deal changed everything he went that's interesting i wonder if there's a film in that that's literally where the idea came from the guy who wrote this film watched the last dance and thought that's interesting and, and went and dug into it that is that's mental and it's and it's i've got to tell you it's quite a good film i've no idea how they pulled it off but it's quite a good film 
I think if Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are in a film nowadays, it's more often than not going to be a decent It's going to be watchable, yeah. Yeah. So the, the other one that I watched, funnily enough, is kind of almost like a companion film to this. There seems to be a few films coming out like this. They're doing a film about the Blackberry, the Blackberry phone. They're doing a film about Flaming Hot Cheetos. It seems to be like a mini trend in Hollywood at the moment. They're making movies about these kind of products, you know, uh, and, and how they, you know, true life films about how people came up with or got deals for or whatever for products. And this is Tetris. This is set in 1988, and it's about the battle to secure the worldwide licensing rights for the computer game. Um, it's directed by the guy who did Filth, that adaptation of the Irvin Welsh uh, book with um, uh, James McAvoy. Okay. It's got Taron Egerton, Toby Jones, Roger Allen, so it's got a good cast. Um, and what's interesting about this is actually, on the face of it, a more interesting idea for a film than Air, because there's a lot of weird shit going on here. Tetris, I mean, I think it's a game a lot of people at least know about, or at least maybe played for like five minutes at least. This game was actually developed uh, by a, a software developer in Soviet Russia in the early 80s. And it became this kind of cult phenomenon. In, you know, not exactly, you know, they weren't exactly selling consoles and games in the Soviet Union. So it was almost like bootleg copies of this were kind of shared for people to play. And it got really big to the point that it, word got out about it in the west and people started doing deals to um uh try and license this to be you know to turn into a game for nintendo or or for the console or for the computer or whatever um so when word got out that this could be a a, a product that they could sell the soviets got involved the kgb were involved in controlling how these rights were licensed around the world Robert Maxwell and his son were involved in it, so there's all sorts of shady deals going on in the background. Toby Jones plays this dodgy middleman who's kind of ripping everybody off as well. And Taron Edgerton plays this American game developer. None of his games are working, but he sees Tetris, thinks this this is, you know, this has got potential, and he kind of steps in and sees if he can broker the deal for Nintendo to get this on their consoles. But to do that, he's got to go to Russia. And he doesn't have a visa, so he goes on a tourist visa and He's breaking the law. He gets caught. He gets interrogated. He's been ripped off by the Maxwells. He's been ripped off by the KGB. The guy who actually made the game doesn't want to talk to him. It, it, it actually becomes quite fascinating that I reckon it would make a better documentary than a film because they had to sex it up for the film. They put in car chases and interrogation scenes that didn't really happen in real life. But it's a, it's a wild story. It's a fucking wild story, and this is really interesting. It's not as well made than Air, but it's a better idea for a film than Air. It's a better story than Air. Uh, and I, I quite enjoyed this one as well. So I don't know. If- just just before uh, we talk about Tetris, I think what's interesting about you mentioning Blackberry is that my missus saw the trailer for that and thought, ooh, I want to watch that. I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because people are remembering these things that happened you know, back in the day and thought, ooh, I wonder what the story is behind that. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to have caught people's eye a bit, hasn't it? So, Tetris... The only thing I know about Tetris is that, you know how they made it look like a horrible Soviet shithole? Mm-hmm. And made it look really grey and horrible and dark and dingy and overcast and miserable and really communist? Mm-hmm. They filmed that in Aberdeen. Yeah, I know. It's brilliant, isn't it? They like used people, in Aberdeen, they... people in Aberdeen were like, oh, this is great. They're, yeah. they're filming a big Hollywood film in the city. They're building loads of jobs and money. And then realised that it was to make it look like a horrible, miserable cesspit. The same way they made Glasgow look like Gotham. In uh, the battle. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they also used um, Prestwick Airport in Glasgow for Moscow Airport. 
Um, but <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, it's quite funny because they used uh, they used a, a couple of tower blocks in 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 uh, they used Seamount Court, which I've driven past quite a few times. You must know that as well. It's as you go as you go west, if you go to the top of Union Street and then go west out of out of town, Seamount Court is just as you get past the um, uh, sort of the edge of sort of the city centre. Um, yes, I know. It's the one with the kind of cobbled bricks on the side of the building. That's right, yeah. And they dressed yeah. it up to make it look more like a Soviet-era tower block. And there's, they get a couple of interviews in the local paper and people are going, oh, I think it looks better. I think it looks better the way they've dressed it up. And I think they took it in good humour when they saw it. They also used the University of Aberdeen Zoology building in Tilly Drone, I found out. Oh, that, that's also a fucking dump. Yeah, I mean, if, if you want to find somewhere that looks like Soviet Russia, I would always go for Tilly Drone. <laughs> I'd rather film it in Russia right now than go to fucking Tilly Rowan. That's right, um, yeah. But Jesus, yeah. Yeah, that Seamount Court, um, I'm not surprised the locals thought it looked better because there's people that have jumped out of that building and I can only assume it's because it's a fucking misery to live in. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, those that whole sort of era of, of concrete tower blocks is pretty yeah. grim to look at. But yeah, I, I've got to say, I, I quite enjoyed Tetris. I mean, I was sceptical about the whole idea, um, but yeah, good movie. It was a genuinely good movie. One note of criticism is that the character that, Taron Edgerton plays is actually mixed race. He's part Asian, and it's a bit dodgy. They just get a white guy to play him. Right, yeah. Trying I to think, make it a bit more authentic to the original. Yeah, I, I think they could have. I know, I know. Taron Edgerton's quite a well-known actor and everything, but they could have done better than that. I think, and that's nothing against him. I like him, but there you go. Yeah, um, I mean, he could have done what? What's his name? Um, Ed Screen, who played Ajax in Deadpool. Mm-hmm. He refused to be in a film recently. I can't remember what film it was because it was meant to be played by like a an Asian man. No, it was meant to be like a Chinese person. He said, well, I'm not going to play that character because I'm a white guy. So you could have done that, but I imagine Apple TV threw a lot of money at the thing. So Yeah, I think it was the Hellboy reboot. So he did a good job to get out of that movie. Yeah, maybe it was that. Then it was nothing to do with the character they were playing. No, 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 no. It was, it was, um, it was because it was whitewashing. He said, "I'm not." Playing. No, I, no. I was making a joke. Oh, sorry. That I'm being fucking terrible. <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> completely screwed your punchline there. I'm sorry. So yeah, um, I have one more. I don't know if you've got any more that you watched this month. No, I did not. Okay, so one more that I went to see at the cinema, which is uh, Sisu. I, I did actually think about going to watch Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, but I'm, look, I'm sure I will catch up to that film and I'm sure I'll like it, but I just wanted to watch something a bit a bit different. And this is very much a bit different. It's a, it's a Finnish film, Finnish language film, and it's set... Well, sorry. It's a Finnish language film, except all the German bits, they just have the German speak in English. I think they had one eye on an international audience. So the Finnish people speak Finnish and the Germans speak English, just so that, you know, whatever, to make it easier to, to follow. So... It's made in Finland. It's set at the end of World War II. A a hardened Finnish war veteran, kind of like a you know, killing machine war veteran, has abandoned the fighting. It's kind of over. The Nazis are in retreat. And he's gone to the wilderness to try and find gold. He figures he's done enough for his country. He's got to do something for himself. He makes a huge find of gold, but then is set upon by retreating Nazi forces who steal his gold. And he goes on a murderous rampage to get them back. And a hugely over-the-top gory violence ensues. Uh, and I really enjoyed this. This was great fun. It was really tough action. The main character, like, hardly speaks. Uh, brilliant, um, brilliant canine performance. He's got a dog who's really cool in the film. Um, some insane stunts, some insane violence. Someone gets a, a landmine thrown at their head at one point. Yes. Is it a Nazi? Yeah. 
Yes. Yeah, this definitely kind of lives up to uh, Steven Spielberg's principle that he patented in the Indiana Jones films, that in a movie you can do whatever you like to Nazis. Uh, and this does whatever it likes to Nazis. It's absolutely... Some of the stuff in it is quite... I don't know how much of this is meant to be just like a fun... You know, like something like Snakes on a Plane or something like that where it's just sort of violence and it's tongue-in-cheek. I don't know quite how tongue-in-cheek this is all meant to be because it did have some kind of quite grim stuff in it, like some injury detailing, like sewing himself up. Um, there are some... There's a, there's this, like, uh, convoy of, of Nazi vehicles and they've, they've dragged some local uh, women with them and it's quite obvious what they're using them for. So it's got some quite grim stuff to it, but it's like the whole thing plays out like a classic B-movie exploitation film. Tarantino would love it. Um, but it's really good. It's really worth watching. If you're not going to go out to the cinema to see it, check it out when it comes on to streaming because it's it's a good watch. It's a lot of fun. In the same way that something like Dead Snow, that kind of Nazi zombie film was. It's a it's good fun, good movie. Good stuff. Is it time for our monthly? It is. Yep. So this is this is time for our resolutions. Now each 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 year, well certainly this year as well, James has joined in. Uh, we do resolutions on. Well, actually, you did resolutions last year, but you didn't do it as quite as a project last time. Yeah. So it was just let's watch more stuff. Yeah. But this this time your resolution is a bit of a project like mine. Um, we each have a project of films we watch by a certain person or a certain director on a certain theme. Each month we watch something by them. James, yours is based on Nicolas Cage films watched at random. You've been watching different ones each month. And one of the things we did last month was we came up with some suggestions for what we're going to call this project, because I always call mine something like the Year of the Carpenter or the, the Kubrick Odyssey, whatever it is. This one's my, my, this year I've got the Cronenberg Institute. You have to come up now. I have to make a choice. What name are you giving your Nick Cage project for this year? Did we not just say this in the last one? Am I making that up? It's no, no. Cage of Consent. No, you said you were going to you said you were going to announce it this episode, but it's suspense. I thought we said we would let the audience come up with it. Oh no, they came up with suggestions, and yes, that's right. Legal Cage of Consent. Okay, so <clears throat> James's project is called Legal Cage of Consent. We'll be putting it out uh, under that name. Um, <laughs> so you found a randomizer online that spits out a Nick Cage film for you to watch. So it could be anything. You've had Lord of War, which was quite good. You've had uh, you'd have had um, some pretty grim ones. What what did the randomizer send you this month? It blessed me. It, it held my prayers, and it gave me. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, really good. Oh, excellent. Yeah, because yes. he's in that, isn't he? Yeah. He plays uh, noir. He plays the noir one. It's quite yeah. hard for me to say that word. Yeah. Um, so I basically just got to watch a good film that he's sort of in. Um, yeah. Not much to say about this film. I think we've spoken about it on this podcast already, but I didn't think it was as good as everyone else did. I thought it was... I think it was great. It was another film that... My missus enjoyed, and that's an absolute chore to get her to watch a film because all she wants to watch is Love Island and Queer Eye. Um, but no, she enjoyed it. I think it's it's a very accessible film. Yeah. I thought the animation might be quite jarring from what I saw in trailers at the time, but no, it's a perfectly good film. I'm actually excited to see the new one because I've watched this one again recently. So yeah, Nick Cage is funny in it. I think he was perfectly cast for this kind of minor supporting role as the... Uh, noir detective version of spider-man from the 1930s hmm. um but yeah great film it's not much to say about nick cage because he's not really in it it's only but, a supporting role in it isn't he yeah yeah um 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's good fun, though. I, I imagine there was some fantasy casting when they did this film. So, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we got Nick Cage to play Spider-Man Noir? And, he, and then when they actually get me, like, they can have fun with it, you know? Yeah. Although sometimes you, you got, you, I think you should avoid that. Like, my, the best example would be Django Unchained is because they, Will Smith was the initial choice and he kind of turned his nose up at it. And then they gave it to Jamie Foxx. And I don't think I could have watched Django Unchained with Will Smith. As the lead role, yeah, I know. It, yeah, I mean, we could we could do a big conversation one of these days about like casting what ifs and stuff because it's quite interesting when you see some great films that have had other people like um, Eric Stoltz was originally going to be um, in Back to the Future and they started filming, they realised it wasn't working and they they knew that Michael J., Michael J. Fox was the only person who could make it work. Harvey Keitel was originally the main character in Apocalypse Now instead of Martin Sheen. Um, so you're right. Sometimes you shouldn't get what you want. You know, first Sounds time. like you're onto something there. In the business, we call this foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah, very good. Yeah, let's uh, let's consider some casting what ifs for a future big conversation, right? Okay, mate. Well, an- anything else to add on your uh, your cage entry uh, for for this month? No, sir. Okay. Well, another entry in legal cage of consent will be available next month. We don't know what it is because James has them picked for him at random. Um, so now it's my turn to talk about my resolution. As previously mentioned, my uh, project for this year is the Cronenberg Institute. Each month I go and watch a Cronenberg a film. At the moment, I'm still doing one of the sort of nine David Cronenberg films I've not got around to seeing among his prolific output. And when I've watched all of those, I'm going to close out the year with three classic Cronenberg films that are a combination of my favourite and the most kind of, you know, typically Cronenberg, sort of classically Cronenberg films. Um, I've been going chronologically through this, so where I've got to uh, now is where in 2007, um, Cronenberg had a hit with a film called A History of Violence, which teamed him up with Viggo Mortensen. He gets back together with Viggo Mortensen in 2007 for the film Eastern Promises. you seen this film, mate? I have not, no. So this is a London-based gangster film about the, the Russian mafia. Uh, Viggo Mortensen is, is in the lead, um, uh, essentially, he's the driver for a Russian mafia family in London. He's kind of loyal. He he does whatever has to be done. He disposes of a body if that's what it takes. Um, he keeps his mouth shut and he starts to earn people's trust and rise in the organisation. Vincent Cassell is the wayward sort of drinking, crazy son of the mob boss. He's trying to make his name in the family business, but he's wild and out of control. Uh, and essentially the, the head of the Mafia family kind of puts Viggo Mortensen on him as his driver to try and keep him under control. In the midst of all this, Naomi Watts is a nurse in, in London A&E who treats a teenage underage Russian girl who dies giving birth, and it's obviously that she's been trafficked and abused and, and, and been, been used as a sex worker by somebody, somebody bad. Um, she wants to kind of find out what, because uh, the, the Russian girl dies, but the daughter, the, the baby daughter is still alive. And she wants to find out more about who her family is, or where she come from, where she finds out, yeah, this, this is all linked to the mafia. The trail leads back to Vincent Cassell. Um, uh, and what it means is, is that the whole story about, you know, uh, trafficking of women could come out. The police start investigating what's going to happen to the daughter, what's going to happen to Naomi Watts. Viggo Mortensen, you know, seems to just be loyal to to the family, but there's, you know, he he meets and talks to this nurse and maybe has um, conflicts of loyalty about what he's doing and what you know and and, and who he's protecting. Um, and it's a very tough, violent film. It pulls no punches on the horrendous nature of the criminal business and the trafficking of young girls. 
it's not really classic Cronenberg in the sense of being body horror or sci-fi or anything, but it's very Cronenberg in the sense that he tells the story the way it is. There's no, he doesn't necessarily, there's no preaching um, sort of speech about trafficking of girls. He just shows you how awful it is. He doesn't make any individual judgment. He says, well, that's what it's like. That's what these gangsters are like. That's how violent they are. That's how they treat people. That's what happens to the girls in there. Um, it's a very good character study of Viggo Mortensen's character and the length someone has to go to and the compromises they have to make to you know to do what they're doing. Um, some iconic scenes, including a terrifying knife fight and some really satisfying you know twists and turns to the plot. Um, this is one of Cronenberg's best films. Um, while I said it's not typical Cronenberg in terms of body horror, you know, it, it's very much a gangster film and does what you need from a gangster film, but he does it his way. Um, you know, stylistically, you can tell it's him because it's so well told, so well directed, classically done. Um, and the, the bit that's kind of most Cronenberg stylistically is he kind of uses Viggo Mortensen's body as like the canvas to tell the story because Viggo Mortensen's got prison tattoos from his time in Russia. And then you, you sort of gain new tattoos as you progress in the Russian mafia. So the story of his rise through the ranks is being told on his body and also his scars from, you know, his you know, previous fights he's had and other scars that he gets through the kind of, you know, some of the very violent scenes in this film. It's like what happens to Viggo Mortensen's body is the story of the film. Um, this is absolutely brilliant. It's a fucking amazing film. Um, I'm kicking myself for not watching it sooner because I watched A History of Violence in the cinema when it came out. And I don't know, I just didn't get around to seeing this film and I really fucking should have done it. It's a really, really, really good movie. Um, absolutely brilliant slow paced um, but brilliantly done and gripping edge of the seat stuff as well honestly terrific film um, certainly one of the best kind of London like organised crime films that's ever been made up there with the Long Good Friday and stuff like that um, the I always do an impromptu top 10 when I'm doing these uh, films uh, where you know some aspect of the film inspires me to say well this film's about this or this film features that and then I tell you 10 other films that are, that are like that uh, and what this inspired me here is that this is one of at least four films that Viggo Mortensen and David Cronenberg did together. Um, David Cronenberg found, uh, you know, directors sometimes often like to ha work again and again with the same actor or actors because they build up a relationship. And he found his guy in Viggo Mortensen. So I thought we could do an impromptu top 10 of collaborations between actors and directors over multiple films where a director has featured the same actor, you know, multiple times in their films. So no particular order, the top 10 such films, apart from Eastern Promises, is or such collaborations, uh, is Scorsese and De Niro, obviously, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, Pedro Almodovar and Penelope Cruz, Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullman, Ingmar Bergman and Max von Sydow, uh, Federico Fellini and Marcello Mastroianni, John Ford and John Wayne, Werner Herzog and Klaus Kinski, Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune, and John Cassavetes and Gina Rowlands. Um, normally it's a list of films. This is a list of directors and actors who've worked together a lot. But uh, if you're interested, any any of the films these actors and directors did together would be worth watching. And frankly, you should watch a bunch of them just to see how relationships with actors and directors develop over time. Um, so that's my impromptu top 10. That's the uh, Cronenberg Institute visit for this month. Next month, I'll be doing another uh, Viggo Mortensen starring or, or leading acting uh, film by Cronenberg, which is 2011's uh, Dangerous Method. Anything else to say to the lovely audience for Double Room Monthly, mate? I think that is us, isn't it? Okay, I think. Nice job. Thank you very much. I uh, hope you enjoyed this. We'll be back in a week with the features.
That's all for this latest edition of Double Real Monthly. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Next week, we'll be back with our regular features. First up will be our classics and recommended feature, where we finally get round to watching Akira. Then our hidden gem, where we tell you why you should get round to watching The Iron Giant. In the one that got away, we'll tell you about A Princess of Mars, and in the remake Hate Watch, we look at the 1992 version of Tom and Jerry the movie. We look forward to you joining us then. Look after yourselves in the meantime, and see you on the other side.